Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. Please help me welcome on tonight, Dr. Michael Brown. Great to be with you, man. Thanks for having me. Dr. Michael Brown, I'm so excited to have you on. It is a major honor. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to be with us tonight. Oh, it's my joy, and I'm I'm loving the energy of your audience already. Let's do this. Awesome. I'm super excited. So I kind of just wanted to give you the backdrop and then give everybody watching just the backdrop from my position. As you know, I've taught a pre-tribulation rapture as of recently. I've been watching your stuff and I'm rethinking. I'm saying, Lord, I want to be biblical, not right. I don't have an interest in being the guy that's right. Like I know it. Nobody else knows it. I want to be integral to the scripture. And so I believe tonight, maybe this is weird. You probably say, I've never had a request where someone said, come on and prove me wrong. But I really do feel that tonight I want to humble myself. You're just... You know, you've been studying this stuff longer than I've been alive. And I really believe that you have so much to bring to our audience, to this idea. And uh, one thing I will say, Dr. Brown, while I was teaching through my book of Revelation that I did for about two and a half months, this is one thing, Dr. Brown, I couldn't reconcile. I couldn't reconcile that there was a rapture before the tribulation. Then there was a second coming. Because in my mind, I was thinking, even as I was teaching it, This is like three comings of Christ, right? There's like, Jesus comes as the Messiah, he dies, and then he comes in the rapture, and then he comes back again a third time. So that was one struggle that I had when I was preaching pre-tribulation. I think that um, it's the general idea that most people preach. And for me, and I'll just be honest, I think what happens is we become echo chambers. So we preach pre-trib, and then, you know, I watch a video of a guy preach it, and then I read a book about it, and then I start repeating it. But in my mind, there was some areas that I felt like I had to keep changing the narrative throughout the book of Revelation as I taught it to try to fit it into the pre-trib idea rather than say, let the text speak for itself. And so I'm, my heart is open. You know, I'm, I'm just so honored to have you on tonight. I'm so excited to have you on tonight. I know people get stirred up about this. I want to be biblical, not be right all the time. And so I think everyone in the chat, everybody watching the several thousand of you that are already on, I would challenge you to humble yourself, to come with the contrite spirit and just really be teachable um, tonight. So Dr. Brown, if you don't mind, maybe just share a little bit about you, who you are, maybe some of your testimony before we jump into this. That'd be awesome. Sure. I'm, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. My testimony is literally from LSD to PhD. I got wow. saved in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using 16-year-old Jewish hippie rock drummer. I went to a little church to pull my best friends out, and God began to deal with me and change my life radically and dramatically. So I got saved. I got, I got born again. I got set free. And when my dad saw that I was off drugs, he said, you know, Michael, it's great you're off drugs, but we're Jews. We don't believe this. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi who befriended me and then began to challenge me. You know, you don't even know Hebrew. Who are you to tell us what to believe? So that's why I ended up majoring in Hebrew in college and then ultimately earning a PhD in Semitic languages from New York University, because I, I wanted to be able to dig into the text as best as I could, the Hebrew Bible in particular, and not have to rely on what a commentary said, mm. what a rabbi said or even what a dictionary said. In other words, I, I could come to my own conclusions just like other scholars. So that's been part of my life, you know, the academic work. I've written commentaries on Jeremiah and Job. I'm working on Isaiah now. Uh, and, and then did a lot of academic work, taught at seminaries. But also it's been part of my life for 50 years now, Jewish outreach. 
So I've written multiple books on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Uh, my, my YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, you find a lot of debates I've done with, with rabbis and things like that. So that's an ongoing part of my life, reaching Jewish people with the good news of the Messiah, equipping the church to reach out. But, you know, Isaiah, when, when you get radically saved and encounter God in a real powerful way, traditional religion alone is not going to do it. Mm. Just going to church is not going to do it. There, there must be ongoing encounter with God. So revival has been a great theme of my heart and life as well. So redemption in Israel is one of our major ministry emphases. And then revival in the church. I was privileged to serve as a leader in the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola from 96 to 2000. I'm an eyewitness to what God can do with the supernatural outpouring. So that has burned in me through the decades, the, the wake-up call to the church, the call to repentance, to encounter God afresh, and then we touch a dying world around us and bring that message to the nations. I also believe that a church that is alive, a church that is shining bright, Come on. should have a positive impact on the world around us. That so rather good. than the world changing us, the church through the gospel should bring about change where we live. And because of that, the third R in our ministry, revival in the church, and then the, the last is, is redemption in Israel. The middle one, which I'm giving last now, is a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in society, where as a result of revival and awakening in the church, the culture, the world around us has actually changed. I, I burn with these things. Day and night do a, a live radio broadcast that we stream as well, the line of fire five days a week. It's live calling. So we get to interact with people from every background and then normally write five articles a week. So whatever's happening in the world around us, I'm normally commenting on that and posting it. So folks, the, the links are in the description there. You can uh, sign up for our emails. You can join our YouTube channel. But we're, we're pouring out, just like you, Isaiah, trying to pour out so information, good. get it out freely to the maximum number of people so that, that we, the people of God, can make a difference. So good, Dr. Brown, really good stuff. Um, make sure, guys, you subscribe. I've, I've linked his channel down below. I actually have a special link to where if you click it, it'll pop up saying subscribe. So you can just right there. We try to make it as easy as possible for you guys. So make sure that before the night's over, that every single one of you watching, maybe if you're on Spotify, Google Play, Charisma Podcast, listening, go go to the, go to the channel and get that link um, and subscribe. Dr. Brown, why do you think pre-tribulation is so popular in today's culture and why are people so zealous to defend it you know again i've preached this but i'm not zealous to sit here and debate back and forth about something that's not found in the bible as you've said in your in your um debates in your book and in your teachings is this a salvation issue why do you think it's such a popular doctrine in the church right it's definitely not a salvation issue for sure and i i have close friends that are pre-trib we've worked together for decades I have others that I preached for many, many, many times, and I don't even know where they stand on it. In other words, it's never come up. There are people I've ministered with side by side for years, and the debate never came up. We preach the second coming. We, mm. we live in readiness, but it never came up. So it's certainly not a salvation issue, and I'm not going to divide over it or even be divisive over it. As to why it's so popular, well, it's been popularized. In, mm. in other words, uh, beginning with the, the Schofield Reference Bible, over 100 years ago, this was widely used, and people often think the notes in the Bible are just as inspired as the text in the Bible. Wow. So people thought, oh, that's what it means. And then Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, 
in the late 1960s became an international bestseller. And then the Left Behind series, the novel, and then it's been made into movies. So the whole thing, they're just, we're going to be, you know, flying on the plane and suddenly the pilot's going to disappear and half the people, or you're going to be playing baseball and the pitch comes in and suddenly the batter disappears and four of the umpires. It's, it's a dramatic thing that, that, that fits well in movies and, and sensationalism. So I'm not saying people believe it because they want to be sensational. I'm saying it's the kind of thing that's easily popularized. And because of these best-selling books and these popular movies, it's gotten out to the point that people think this is essential gospel. The fact is, there is no major church leader in history. Let me say it again. No wow. major church leader in history who preached anything that can be called a pre-trib rapture prior to the mid-1800s. So that alone would just make you wonder, where did it come from then? And why is it that consistently, when you read the disciples of the apostles and their disciples, they're not infallible? I understand that. I do not hold to the authority of church tradition. But you have to wonder why all of them that talked about this were expecting to live through final tribulation, if it happened. And we're expecting to see an antichrist, and we're expecting Jesus to come after those things. You have to wonder, how did they all get it so wrong if they were so close to wow. the apostles and their disciples? So it does raise questions. I can say for me that I literally heard that before I clearly heard the gospel because wow. it was being taught a lot in the church where, where my friends started going and they would bring it back and talk to me about it. And, wow. It's fascinating. I didn't know this and stuff from the book of revelation. So I believe I heard that first. And then I heard the saving message of Jesus. So when I got saved, I just thought, this is it. This is the doctrine. This is what we believe. Wow, so you actually grew up hearing about a pre-tribulation rapture, and what you're saying is this is not something that dates back to early church history or even the Bible or even the Gospels. This is a, something that man has made. I think Left Behind is huge because, you know, I'm 30 years old, but I grew up watching Left Behind, reading all the Left Behind kids' books, and then hearing all the time in church that, you know, at any moment, Jesus is going to return, that we have to be ready, which is a biblical reality in the sense that we should all be ready. And this is one thing I've always said. We might not be in the last days, but we're all in our last days. Yeah. So we're not saying tonight, and I, I think uh, just to clarify, Dr. Brown, we're not saying not to be ready for Jesus. We're not saying, we're saying, hey, you could be in your last days, and the reality is nobody's promised tomorrow that really any of us can go at any moment, right? I mean, we could right, breathe our last breath, breath at any think, moment. Think of this. Think of this. Everyone who's been waiting for the return of Jesus thus far has, has died without him returning, Correct. Mm, yeah, but every everyone has died, and and we all know people that died suddenly, car accident, sudden heart attack for no reason. They're, they're gone. You're here one day, and they're gone. Every single day, someone dies unexpectedly. Many many people die unexpectedly. So we know we have to be ready to meet the Lord at any moment, just because of death. That's a reality, yep. right? So that reality is enough. And I want to live in such a way as to please the Lord and my life makes sense in the light of eternity. I, I don't need an any minute rapture to give me any extra incentive for that. In fact, aside from the idea of readiness and, and not falling into sin and laziness and complacency, like, ah, he's never coming back. Aside from that, the emphasis in the New Testament is not on the when, but on the what. When he returns, what's going to happen to us when he appears, we're going to become like him. We're going to see him in the clouds, be caught up to meet him, and then together descend to earth in the sight of the whole world. I mean, it, it's a glorious thing that's going to happen in light of that. 
in light of the fact that he's going to come and pour out his wrath on the ungodly, how then should we live today? It's the what more than the when that gives us incentive. So good. Let's talk about the idea and the contradiction. And this is, again, this is the number one thing that I couldn't reconcile and why I'm, why we're doing this tonight and why I'm pursuing saying, hey, I want to learn about this, is that if we do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, biblically and in, an, in a real practical sense, we're preaching three comings of Christ. Would that be safe to say? Because I think about yeah. it. Jesus came as the Messiah, right, dies, and then he comes again before the tribulation for us, and then he comes again at the end of the seven years. Because I, I, at least all the pre-trib people I know, and including myself, I've always taught, hey, the pre-trib, the tribulation uh, before it starts, God raptures up his church. And then at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back on the white horse. You know, we come back with him in white garments, his robes dripping in blood. Ours are pure. And he comes at the battle at Armageddon. We know the whole story. Um, talk to us a little bit about this idea of three comings of Christ. If we yeah. preach, because again, there's a, there's 75% paid probably more in the audience that are pre-trib. If we preach this pre-trib, Really, we're preaching three comings of Christ. Yeah, we are. And uh, let me get into that in detail in a moment. But yeah. first, this word of background. When, when I was saved about a year, I was so hungry for the Lord that I spent at least six or seven hours alone with God every day. And I mean alone. There were no distractions then. You didn't have cell phones and, and PCs and tablets and social media and anything. I mean alone. Six wow. or seven hours alone with God every day. Three hours would be in the word. I would read the word two hours a day. I would memorize 20 verses a day. So by the, by the time I was saved about two years, I had read the Bible at that point, cover to cover about five times. I'd probably memorized 4,000 verses. If you asked me why I believed anything I believed, I was like a machine gun. Here all the verses. Why? A friend asked me once to explain to him the difference between the rapture and the second coming and to go through Matthew 24 with him. And as I did, I realized why well, I don't know much about this subject. That's wow. odd because I know all this other stuff really well. So because I was sure it was right, I went out and got all the pre-trib books. And I just invite people, just don't get mad at me, but think about this. Come on, go ahead. Where did you get this doctrine from? Did you get it just, you never heard it? No one ever told you about it? Just studying the word? You came to these conclusions? Or was it taught to you? Was it explained to you? So mm. I went out and got all, all the major so books, J. Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come, several volumes by John Walvoord. I mean, books, books that had charts of what to expect and see all of this stuff. Okay. I got all the books. I mastered the doctrine. I preached it aggressively and as a young guy, dogmatically mm. until someone gave me a book. I was saved maybe at this point, four or five years. And it, it questioned whether this was taught in church history. And I thought, wait a second, wait a second. Out of everything I believe, this is the only thing I didn't get straight from the Bible. I got wow. reading other books. When I went back to just reading the Bible, it's like, of course, of course, there's no pre-trib rapture. So, so let me explain that. Back to your question. Yeah. The Bible uses a number of different words to describe the Lord's return. The most common one is parousia. Okay. For example, 1 first, first Corinthians uh, or 1 Thessalonians, uh, the fourth chapter, it speaks of his coming, right? And that's when we're going to yeah. meet him in the air. Or, or 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, that, that it speaks of his coming for us. Okay, so that's the primary word that's used. The Greek word can mean coming in the sense of an arrival or actual presence. Someone's presence can be spoken of as parousia. Mm. Paul uses it a number of times, like 1 Corinthians 16, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. Or he writes to the Philippians about his coming to them. It's an actual arrival. So wow. I'm at the airport a lot. And they'll say, flight so-and-so is approaching. 
okay, it's close, but it hasn't arrived yet. It's arrived when it gets on the ground and gets to the gate. Now it has mm. arrived. So that's how this is described. It's a well-known word in the ancient Greek world. All right. So wow. it is a parousia. So my first question is, if Jesus comes and, and he stops somewhere above the earth, never touches the earth, right? Has he arrived? No. Can that wow. be described as a parousia? No. Here's, here's the other thing, that elsewhere, it says explicitly, like in Matthew 24, after the tribulation of those days is when the parousia takes place. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Lord wow. will destroy the Antichrist with his parousia, right? So here's the question. Is there a parousia before the tribulation and then a parousia after the tribulation? That would be a second coming and a third coming. That would be like saying, now, first we have the, the, the coming, and then after seven years, we have the coming. It's completely confusing when you use the same words. Yet the words that Paul uses are words like arrival. The coming of the Lord is his arrival. And, and it, Jesus tells us it will be after the tribulation of those days. Paul tells us it, was, it is then when he comes publicly, Paul speaks of his appearing, of his revelation. We will all see him. Peter says with his coming is when he's going to come with, with, with destruction. That happens after the tribulation. And Paul says explicitly in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when he comes in fire and wrath for the ungodly, that's when we're going to be rescued. So it, it, it's very clear in scripture that there's not a second coming and a third coming. Or think of it like this, a coming where he doesn't actually arrive. So it's an arrival where he doesn't arrive. It's, it's an appearing where he's unseen. It's a revelation that's hidden. No, no. All mm. the words that Paul uses are speaking of a public event after the final outpouring of wrath, after the shaking judgment. This is when these things happen. And as for us here on the earth, God, God has great keeping power. I've put my trust in him. Why, sh why should we fear what Jesus tells us to expect? John 16, 33 in this world, you will have tribulation, but be, of, be encouraged, I've overcome the world. And what does Paul write in Romans 8.35, where he says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? What's the first thing on his list? Tribulation? tribulation. No, never. Why are we so yep. afraid of the tribulation? Wow, that's so good. So this idea, and I want to really just capitalize on what you said, it, this idea that if I just read the Bible, if some of you didn't catch this, if I just read the Bible and I didn't take in all these books that I've bought on the pre-trib or all these uh, YouTube videos I've watched or all these articles I've read, which I've done all those things, right? If I just open the Bible, would I come up with a pre-tribulation rapture? Would my conclusion be Jesus is going to come before the tribulation. And I think the the honest answer would be no. And this is something, you know, when we debate against those that are cessationists, or we did a yeah. video a couple weeks ago on disproving cessationism. One of my points in the video was, if you just read the Bible, you would never come up with the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. You'd never come up with healing and deliverance is not for today because you can't there's no place in scripture where it says they ended there's no place where it says god has taken the gifts away or the now that the apostles have died now that the, the um the bible has been canonized we don't need the gifts or the apostles or the prophets anymore and so i think this is a really valid argument because a lot of us including me and i'm being honest dr brown with you tonight have got our information from a book we read or a youtube channel or we you know we look up best pre-tribulation -tri arguments and then we look at the scriptures and say oh that fits there that goes there but i think you have to you have to really stretch some of these things to try to fit it in one example is 
when I was teaching through the book of Revelation and I couldn't escape the fact that there was these martyrs throughout Revelation, right? And again, I'm just being vulnerable with all of you guys watching. I know there's 3,000 people watching, but just hear my heart. I was reading about these tribulation martyrs and these, these saints under the altar of God saying, Lord, avenge us, avenge us. When is the time? And the Lord would keep saying, now's not the time. There's more that, that need to die. There's more that needs to be done before I avenge the saints. And then of course, you know, he throws the fiery sensor down later on. But I kept thinking in my mind and I kept, making myself say as I was teaching it, you know, these are those that got saved after the the, pre, the rapture, right? These are those that got saved after the rapture. But then one day I was thinking in my head, that's not actually in the Bible. It doesn't say these are the tribulation saints after the rapture. It just says these are those that were martyred in the tribulation. So then I started thinking, how does this make sense? Because again, we're having to put our own opinion into the text and try to like say things that aren't there and for me i just struggled because i thought these people are getting martyred non-stop and are these just people that got saved after but again that's that pre-trib mindset so let me let me go here really quick um some would say and i've said again so a lot of these arguments i've used again being transparent here the church is not mentioned in the tribulation from revelation 4 to 18 and then and obviously revelation 19 through 22 we see the church reappear or re-mention um and then what do you think of the idea that john being caught up represents the church being raptured this is a big argument people make i personally don't see it i've never made that argument because i can't see how john taken up in the spirit represents the church although i've heard that argument you sure have over and over and over in these debates how, how do you make sense of the church not being a main theme or seen and address and addressed throughout um the book of revelation First, the church is never made main theme. It mentions seven churches, ecclesia in Greek, seven congregations in Asia Minor. Jesus speaks to them in Revelation 2 and 3. And then in the 22nd chapter, he reiterates, I had this message for the churches. So mm -hmm. the church in terms of the universal body of Christ is never mentioned by that name in Revelation. That's the first thing. It's just seven congregations in Asia Minor, each one in ecclesia. And then in Revelation 22, Jesus reiterates, I had messages for the, the, this, this book of Revelation here as for these churches, okay? So that's, mm -hmm. that's the first thing. Second thing is we're told that the church is now in heaven, right? Yeah. Beginning in the fourth chapter. Well, there's a lot of vision in heaven. How come it never mentions the ecclesia there? Never, mm -hmm. never mentioned, never uses that word. If you say, see, they're not mentioned on earth. Well, they're not mentioned in heaven either. Yeah, and, true. and beginning Revelation 19, it doesn't mention a special class of believers. In fact, elsewhere in Revelation, it talks about the servants of God, you know, the remnant that keep his commandments. Those are the believers, right? And the idea, mm. well, if God, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let me live through the tribulation. Oh, but these others, he, he doesn't love the same way. He, he doesn't care about the same way, the ones that he lets go through the tribulation. And our brothers and sisters that in recent years have been tortured to death and burned to death and buried alive, does he not? love them because he lets them go through that. Wow. This mentality is largely, especially a Western mentality, because we are not going through things that brothers and sisters have gone through in church history. And, and therefore, we, we have this mythical thing that we will just be spared from some of the suffering. But the way we live in America as believers is very unusual in church history. Yeah. And it's very unusual around the world in terms of where the church is really growing. Wow, that's as, really as for, good. Yeah, as for Revelation 4, John being caught up to heaven representing the rapture, well, first, you have to find this rapture, right? In other words, when you actually go looking for it, it's, it's not mentioned aside from in conjunction with the public return of Jesus after the tribulation. That, that's the first thing. The second thing is, who gave you that idea? Mm -hmm. Where does the text say that? Where does the text indicate it? 
Where does the text say that John is a type of the church? It, it's not there. It is purely imagined and read into it to fit a certain scenario. And then others would read Revelation entirely differently, saying, look, the first application is to the first century. That has to have meaning for the first century. So let's start there. So I think we have to ask a lot of larger questions coming into this. But I'm, I'm a Bible guy. Show me. If you show me in the Bible, yeah, I'll yeah. adjust my theology. I'll change what I believe. Show me where this is a type of the church being allegedly raptured and show me the rapture somewhere. You know, I, I say yeah. it's funny. People say, but where do you put the marriage supper of the lamb? Because that's what's going to happen when we're raptured up to heaven during those seven years, the marriage supper of the lamb. So I, I was doing a, a, a live stream with one of your friends last week. And I said to him, well, give me your top three verses on the marriage supper. He had none. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's Everyone another says, thing. What? We got this, this giant doctrine about the marriage supper of the lamb. The Bible doesn't talk about that explicitly. And, and if it does, it's, it would be in Isaiah 25, where there's a great feast after Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom here on the earth post-trib. That's when it takes place. Yeah, and I think the only mention of it in Revelation, if I'm not mistaken, is Revelation 19, and it gives you a couple sentences, and then it goes on to the battle at Armageddon, where you know God comes back, destroys the Antichrist, the whole thing happens, and then the birds of the air feast on the bodies of those that are destroyed at That's at the Great Armageddon. Supper. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the, the Great Supper. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Really good. So let's let's um let's go into this, right? And this is what the chat's going to continue to spam throughout the broadcast and continue to say, and again, guys, this is good. We want you to be here. We want to discuss these things and we will, if we have time, take questions at the end. So save your questions for the end. We'll take some of your guys's um, questions about this. This is the most, I guess, popular, I would say is God's wrath is not for Christians and the tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out. So where do we, I, I think you already touched on this a little bit, but where do we, where do we draw the line of, okay, listen, if God's wrath, and again, this is an argument that's always brought. I've used this argument again. If God's wrath is being poured out, if, you know, the Bible says the day of wrath, it's the time of wrath and all the stuff that it says, where do Christians lie in that? Is that like God pouring out on everybody? Do Christians go through this as well? Does God protect Christians? Where do you see that argument in, in terms yeah. of the wrath of God being poured out? So first, when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 5, we're not appointed to wrath, he's not talking about tribulation. That's not the big issue. By the way, Thessalonians, you won't be going through a seven-year tribulation that's going to happen more than 2,000 years from now when you've been long dead. That, that's not the issue. It means we're not going to hell. Okay. And when Jesus comes pouring out his wrath, that final day of wrath, we won't be subject to that. So that's gotcha. number one. Number two, God's wrath has been poured out through history. And God's wrath is, is being poured out in certain ways now. And God knows how to keep his people in the midst of it. Uh, Isaiah 26, God says to his people in an end time passage, come away, hide yourselves in the inner chamber in, until my wrath passes by. So mm. he knows how to keep us just like he kept the children of Israel uh, in, in Egypt. He poured out his wrath on the nation and he preserved the people of Israel. So he knows how to do that. The, the other thing is that the idea that the tribulation is all the wrath of God. Really, it's, it's towards the final moments of that or the, the final period of that, that the most wrath is poured out. Like everything else, the Bible does talk about believers, God's servants on the earth at that point. It, it mentions in Revelation 9, putting a seal uh, on, yeah. on some of them to protect them. So, so God can do that. He puts a seal on it, just like in Ezekiel, the ninth chapter. He protects us. He marks us. You know, Revelation 7 references this. So he knows how to keep us from his wrath. This is a theme from scripture. And you say, yeah, but it's going to be different then. Oh, God's not able. 
Sorry, mm. I didn't realize God wasn't able to protect us from his wrath. So he lovingly disciplines his people. He never pours out his wrath on his believing children. That's for a sinning, rebellious world. But he will keep us through it. And again, just look up the word flipsis in Greek. See if you can look it up in a concordance and, because it'd be translated in different ways. But it means tribulation, trouble, pressure. And it occurs over 40 times in the New Testament. And it's just a regular word. And, and there are periods where it's even greater. The tribulation is even greater, more intense. Jesus says, hey, you're going to have that in this world, but be encouraged. I've overcome the world. In me, you overcome also. Nothing to fear. That's so good. And I like what you said earlier, this, this American mentality that God doesn't want us to go through anything, right? You look at people, I, right now I'm doing a verse by verse in the book of Acts. So we're in, I think, chapter 17 or 18. We're going through every single verse on live stream. And they were constantly going through tribulation. I mean, they were constantly, and they would get persecuted and they would get beat and everything you could think of. And then they would say, Lord, thank you that we're found worthy of going through this tribulation, of going through these trials. They're thanking God for letting them go through tribulation, right? And this is, it's a mile it's a mile away from the christianity we have today in america where somebody makes fun of us on facebook and then we're like oh lord i'm being persecuted and then you look at other believers that are watching tonight there's people tonight watching from china there's people watching tonight from india and they're going like oh no persecution's normal where we're at it's just a western idea and i think it's selfish of us to have this mindset where we're too good to go through tribulation or we don't we could never suffer the way the disciples did i mean if you look at the track record all the disciples, except for, I believe, John, and then Judas obviously killed himself, they all died at the hands of persecutors. Like, God didn't deliver any of them from the hands of their persecutors. If you look at James, killed by the sword, God didn't deliver him from the tribulation. So this idea that God would deliver us, I totally agree when you look at the context of Scripture, God has a way of protecting his people, but then also there are people that God allows to be persecuted for the growth of and the extension of the gospel. Now, some say, well, I don't understand that. Well, there's a lot of stuff that we don't have to understand. His ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. And so I think that's a, you know, there's a healthy tension between persecution and trial. And I think, I don't want to say, that, well, I guess I could say the prosperity gospel that's been popularized in America says God would never let you suffer. God would never let you. There's people right now watching Dr. Brown. Here's the reality. They're dying of cancer right now as they watch. And we pray and we believe and we're charismatic. We believe and we've seen people get healed of cancer, but some will die of cancer. Some will go through that tribulation and God will carry them through. And we know, we all know people that have gone through the, this thing. And so I really like um, the point you made there with the tribulation that God will keep his people through the tribulation period. Um, let's talk about here the rapture and the second coming being different events. So let me just give you what I've talked about, what I've people have read, what people are even typing in the chat. They're, they're saying the rapture and the second coming, which I think you touched on this, are different events because of the rapture. One person said earlier, Jesus doesn't come back. He meets us in the air. But at the second coming, they return to earth with Jesus as a heavenly army. Um, at the rapture, believers get new bodies and go to heaven. At the second coming, glorified believers come down from heaven. At the rapture, the church, uh, at the rapture delivers the church from tribulation. The second coming, believers come down again. At the rapture, the church goes to heaven. The second coming, Jesus comes to earth. At the rapture, and it happens at any moment the second coming happens after the tribulation so again people draw these parallels before between the differences would you just explain to us with the post-tribulation mindset what does it look like in a practical sense um because it sounds like what you're saying is it's all those things but they're together they're not separate events they ha they happen at the same time right but not just that the all those arguments as persuasive as they sound are absolutely unbiblical. Why? Mm. Because Paul and other New Testament writers use the exact same 
vocabulary for the so-called rapture and the second coming. So reread what you just read. And in fact, if you don't mind, read the first two, but instead of rapture, just use the word second coming. Whatever they use in the second part, use in the first part and just reread that. Okay. So at the second coming, believers meet Jesus in the air. At the second coming, they return to earth with Jesus as a heavenly army. At the second coming, believers get new glorified bodies. I see see where you're going here and go to heaven. At the second coming, glorified believers come down from heaven. So that's 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 Paul's vocabulary. Okay, that's Paul's exact vocabulary. So, for example, First Thessalonians four, which is the classic passage about we'll meet the Lord in the air. Right. He uses the word the coming, the parousia. He doesn't use a word for rapture there. Mm. He uses the word for the, the coming, which is an actual arrival. Right. So. Problem number one is if you taught it using biblical vocabulary, it would be complete nonsense. First, we have the second coming. Then we have the second coming. The second coming is a secret event. The second coming is a public event. It would be complete and other nonsense. Be like, what in the world are, are you talking about? That's, that's the first problem there. The, the second problem, again, is if it's not an arrival, if it's an actual coming, he stops in heaven or, or, or somewhere above the earth, then you can't call it a coming. You can't call it a revival. An arrival. Also, if it is a secret event, a hidden event, why is it described elsewhere in the New Testament as his appearing, his epiphania? We long for 2 Timothy 4, we long for his appearing, not for a secret event, but for his appearing, which Matthew 24, Jesus says, his appearing to be seen by all will be after the tribulation. We are waiting for his appearing or the apocalypsis in Greek, which is his revealing. So that's the second problem. The third issue is, is simply this. When, when Paul says, we'll meet the Lord in the air, the Greek word he uses for meet is commonly used for the crowd that would go out to meet, say, the emperor or the royal dignitary as he came near the city. They would meet him and escort him back. Isn't wow. it a little bit bizarre? Say that, that one more time. Say that one more time. So the, the, the word used for meeting there in First Thessalonians 4 is commonly used in the ancient Greek world for when the crowd would go out to meet the, the royal dignitary who was coming in, making his parousia in their city. They would go out to meet him and escort him back. The wow. idea that Jesus comes all the way down, stops, right? Catches us up secretly, whereas the Bible is explicit. This is going to be a public event for the world to see. Catches us up explicitly and then turns back to heaven. Where does it ever talk about him returning? Show me one verse where it says he's going to come almost here and then return back. No, never mentions that at all. Instead, he appears for the whole world to see his glorious appearing, Titus 2, yes, his glorious wow. appearing. We are now caught up to meet him. The dead Messiah rise first. We who are alive and remain are caught up to meet him, given our glorified bodies. And now, as part of his army, we descend to earth with him as he pours out his wrath on on a sinning world. And the whole world, the world that was hating us and persecuting us, sees it happen. That's glorious. That's powerful. That's a hope. And and it's exactly what scripture says. The events take place at one and the same time. As for the idea that, quote, the rapture could happen at any moment, just a question. You know, when when Peter was told by Jesus that he was going to die an old man and be crucified, Wasn't that telling Peter that Jesus was not returning any moment? When Jesus gave the Great Commission and start here and go here and go here, before the disciples had even gotten out of Jerusalem, do you think they thought that Jesus could come any minute? Mm. In fact, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, is is he says that for, for those who are asleep, he's coming as a thief in the night. 
But for you as believers, you'll know the times. Jesus says in Luke 21, when you see these things happening, look up for your redemption draws near. Your redemption draws near. We don't know the day or the hour, but we should know the season. We should know the times. There, there are things that scripture speaks of that have to happen before the Lord returns. Let's say that you were a, a pre-tribber and you believed that Israel had to be restored back to the land before Jesus returned. Well, if that hadn't happened yet, you could know, okay, there's still time. So again, God can accelerate the pace and things that we expect to take 100 years could take five years. And we live in readiness to, to meet the Lord because any of us could die at any moment. But the idea of this, any second rapture, it's an unhealthy way to live. It, it robs us of long-term vision, and it's actually not taught in the Bible. So good. I know there's a lot of people that are getting shook up. Listen, I know you guys are saying, Isaiah, you're being converted. Isaiah, you're changing. I am. I'm listening. I'm receiving. And I'm going, wow, this is, he's giving us Bible here. He's giving us actual, not what a book says, not what a YouTube video says, not what an article says, you know, on Relevant Magazine. He's giving us actual Bible and Bible facts. So it's it's hard. And I, I told you earlier, you did a debate that I watched, I think the first 20 or 30 minutes of, and I was like feeling bad for the, the I won't mention who you debated, but I felt bad for the guy you debated because I thought in my head, how could you argue this? Like what argument, you know, it almost feels foolish even bringing you some of these arguments, but it's like, what argument can you bring once you've received the truth? And some of you, I would just challenge to humble yourself and say, man, maybe I was wrong about this. It's a healthy thing to say, I was wrong about something and then change. That's like repentance. It's like, I was wrong, I'm gonna change. And so, yeah, I'm definitely being enlightened. God is opening my eyes and I'm loving everything that you're saying. I wanna just touch on this idea of a suddenly. Um, you said something where, cause people, in the, people are gonna say, push back and say, well, the Bible says no one's gonna know the day or hour, but what people don't recognize, and you mentioned this, is the Bible actually says we will know the season of the Lord's return. Jesus said when you see the branches changing, the buds changing, just like you know summer's coming, then you know the Son of Man is getting ready to come. So um, we will know the season or the time, so that would line up with the post-tribulation rapture because we're not gonna know the exact day of, you know, this is the start of the seven years, this is the last day, but we right. will be, to some extent, have an idea of, okay, we're in the season of the time where the Lord can come back at any moment. So it doesn't contradict. I hope I'm representing you right. It doesn't yeah. contradict what Jesus says. It actually explains better what Jesus said, because Jesus said, we're going to know the season, um, which if you guys don't know, a season's only a few months. So it's not like a season's a year. A season represents just several months. So Jesus is saying, you're going to actually know the approximate time. Let me also read one verse here that you talked about that I think is very telling that this week I've been looking into and I was like, wow, I didn't see this in full light before but let me just read this first Thessalonians 5 and I'm just gonna read it in its full context um, but concerning and everybody please again I'm being converted here but everybody that's pre-trib just listen first uh, Corinthians first uh, Thessalonians 5 1 but concerning the times and season brethren you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night so Paul is saying you know it comes as a thief in the night for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But here's where I want to key on here, because I've used this verse now, I'm realizing out of context, because here's what verse 4 says. Everybody listen. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. I mean, this is a revelation, guys. <laughs> if you read this, you're going, what? For you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or nor of darkness. Therefore... 
Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But those who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate. Okay, and he goes on and on. But interesting here, which I've never heard any pre-tribber preach this. I've never preached it as being someone that was pre-trib. Okay, I'm going to use past tense verbiage here. But where he says in verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. So it will be a surprise to the world, but you're not in darkness and it won't overtake you. And this is what it says, or it shouldn't overtake you if you're not sleeping. It shouldn't overtake you as a thief for your sons. Um, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. Talk to us a little bit about that there, because I think that's a, you know, that's a, um, that's a game changer there when you realize, yeah. wait a minute, Paul says it shouldn't be a surprise to us. Again, Jesus gives us signs by which we can know that our redemption is, is drawing near. That's one thing. Uh, here and elsewhere in the New Testament, the threat of Jesus coming as a thief in the night is a threat of judgment for those asleep. Mm. It's, it's a threat for the world or, or for believers who've fallen asleep. He comes as a thief in the night. But if we are children of the light, then we don't live in the night spiritually. We always live in the light. And therefore, that day will not overtake us as a thief. So why do we take the thief in the night passages, which are, are warnings to the non-believer or warnings wow. to, the, to the sleeping saints, and now apply that to our own theology for ourselves? It's a bizarre thing. And, and you know, the, the inconsistency of things always strikes me. For example, people say, what about Revelation 3.10? And Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia that, that he's going to keep them from the hour of trial that comes on the whole earth. And, 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 and they say, and, and the, the churches in Revelation, that represents seven church ages. So I ask, well, first, where does it say they're church ages? Nowhere mm. does the text tell us that. And I'd never dream of it, reading it any more than 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Those are church ages, right? I mean, where does it say that? It doesn't. But even if they were church ages, and even if we were in the, the last church age now, that would be Laodicea, which is after Philadelphia. So that promise, wow. even with the church age theory, would have been several hundred years ago. And then based on the New Testament itself, it was written to a church in that day. It must have had relevance to them. But the most profound thing is that the, the Greek phrase there, to keep from, tera, uh, with, with the, the Greek uh, verb tereo, to, to, to keep, to guard, and the preposition from, that only occurs two times in the entire New Testament, to keep from. Revelation 3.10 and John 17, 15. Let me read it to you. Jesus says, my prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Wow. So the only other time that this is used, and it's used here before Revelation, Jesus is saying, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but rather to keep them from the evil one. God knows how to keep us from his wrath, in this world, from the evil one, from the hour of trouble, he knows how to keep us from those things right here in this world. And his prayer is not that God would take us out of the world. It's never been his prayer. One of wow. my friends says the goal is not to get the church out of the world, but to get the, 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 the church into the world, to, to get the, what's in the church into the lost, into this world. So good. Dr. Brown, why do you think people still zealously get so angry? Do you think that pre-trib is a sacred cow in the church. I mean, to me, again, if I'm wrong, I'm like, humble myself. Let's, 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 go, let's go with what the Bible says, not with what I think or what a book thinks. Why is there such an anger towards anybody that resists a pre-tribulation doctrine? Why do people get so zealously angry? Do you think it's a sacred cow in the church? 
I mean, we, we can all do that with certain doctrines that are important to us, right? You might be a Calvinist or a Minionist or a cessationist or a continuationist or, you know, different views. And we can be very passionate about that. But it strikes me as, as odd that it's often so passionate here when, when the book that Craig Keener and I wrote, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, which is in the link there. Which I'm going to read this it. week. I'm going to read that book this week. Okay. So guys, awesome. it's down below in the description. Yeah. So the book we co-authored and we both came out of, of pre-trib teaching. That's what we learned when we were first saved. And we assumed the church leaders knew better than we do. So we better learn it. You know, that's, that was our men mentality. Then the more we read the word, the more we realized it, it wasn't there. But the book is written in a gracious spirit. Again, some of the finest Christians I know on the planet are pre-tribbers. They love the Lord. They're serving God. We can work side by side without any problem or any issue. But when I see people getting so angry or calling me a heretic, I mean, think of this. This, this is not even a salvation yeah. issue to yeah. start. And then was unknown in terms of this whole systematized doctrine until the 1830s and thereafter. So to, to, that's basically you're calling all the church in history up until then, and much of the church around the world to this day, heretical. I mean, it's, it's a bizarre Can thing. Can you say that again? You're saying that this high idea of the pre-trib, which a lot of people are angry about, didn't even start until you said the 1830s. It, didn't, it wasn't even around. Yeah, yeah, in terms of any type of systematized teaching on this or clear teaching, and there's okay. not a single major church leader uh, who taught anything near this. You know, you'll read a select quote, but then when you read, you, you got to read the whole quote. You got to see what the whole book says. And you realize, ah, it's being pulled out of context because people say, no, no, go to this. It'll show the church fathers supported pre-trib. Trust me, church historians will tell you other when you actually look in the full quote or look at the full context, like, oh, that was taken out of context. Mm. But look, but you're basically calling, I mean, from John Wesley to Charles Spurgeon, to you know, some of the finest saints on the planet that you're calling them all heretics. So I, it doesn't bother me. I just feel bad for people. Yeah. Why get so emotional about it? I, that's the first thing I challenge someone. If God says something in his word and someone doesn't hold to it, you feel bad for them, but you don't get all emotional over it. You know, mm -hmm. I have Calvinist friends and we can debate back and forth Calvinism, Arminianism. It's a good debate because we each have scriptures on different sides and things. And I understand why they hold to my, that, their view. They understand why I hold to mine and we have fellowship. In Jesus, you know, in, in the midst of our differences. So I don't know why people get so passionate, except that it has become a sacred cow. There's almost an emotional attachment to it. And this idea of we, we get saved from the tribulation. If we don't get saved from the tribulation, it's not the gospel. God doesn't love me. I mean, I've had people tell me that with tears. I'm not, I'm not trying to mock or yeah, be condescending. Yeah. God, God forbid, I honor my pre-trib friends and fellow leaders. I honor them in the Lord. And, and other scholars, I honor them in the Lord. But when I see people get so emotional, something's wrong there. You know, there, there was, there was a, a cowboy preacher in England. This was his whole getup. I mean, he'd wear this cowboy out and talk with a heavy, you know, cowboy kind of Texas accent and, and was preaching on the resurrection. So just his out the boots and the, the cowboy, you know, it got attention, the leather jacket. He's preaching on the resurrection of Jesus. And an atheist starts screaming. I mean, his face is vibrating. Jesus did not rise from the dead. And the guy said, then why are you so angry? Mm. You know, so I would just ask if you're really ticked at me. Or it's like, how dare Isaiah bring this guy? I'm, I'm, I'm subscribing for everybody here. <laughs> just, just to ask yourself, why are you so angry? Because if I was wrong on this after holding to it the last 45 years, I'd be embarrassed by being wrong as a teacher in the body. I'd, I'd re-examine how could I be so wrong, 
they're not going to be angry at you for sharing mm. a differing view. So if there is this emotional reaction, ask yourself why, and then just do what I do. Lord, whatever your word says, I want to embrace. Whatever your truth is, I want to follow. That's so good. And I've come to find anytime I don't agree with the Bible, I'm always wrong. The Bible's never yes, wrong when I read it and say, oh, wait, that, that doesn't make sense to my pre-trib doctrine or whatever it is I'm preaching. And then I go, oh, I think I might be the wrong one. I don't think I've ever come to a place where the Bible's wrong. So again, I think it takes humility from many of you um, that are being enlightened tonight to what the Bible says. And, you know, Dr. Brown, I don't want to ever undervalue, which this needs to be said. And there's, you know, almost 4,000 people watching. You are incredibly um, educated in the Bible more than I would safely say anybody that's probably watching that's that's debating or arguing tonight. So that's valuable. We don't just say, well, you know, and some of you listen, you've been saved a year and you're acting like you knew Jesus personally when, you know, you're his cousin in in the, the Matthew. So for me, I'm thinking I've been saved 11 years. You know, you've been studying this stuff way longer than I've probably even been alive. And so I think we have to also realize, man, there's a level of, of um, study, of research, of scholarly work that you've done that is trustworthy, that is trustworthy, that you're not just shooting in the dark here saying this is what I think the Bible says. Like you're got, you guys, you're talking about years and years and years of studying, of research, of course, all the prayer and fasting, all the spiritual side. I'm, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just saying I want to also put make sure that we don't ever undervalue that because I think in the church we think, oh, well, I believe this, they believe that, but it's like, man, let's take into consideration the study, the um, the all the time that's been put in to teach and train. Um, what are some of the dangers of believing in a pre-trib rapture in a practical sense? Those that say, hey, I'm hanging on, I'm pre-trib. Again, guys, let us just remind you, I know there's new people jumping on throughout this entire broadcast. This is not a salvation issue. This is a secondary issue. You're not going to he hell because you're pre-trib. Um, you're not going to hell because you're post-trib. This is not something to divide over. This is not something to unsubscribe over. This is not something to not listen to a teacher over. So because so-and-so's pre-trib and I'm post-trib, I'm not going to cancel them and say, I can't listen to none of their teachings because I'm post-trib and they're pre. Um, we're definitely not doing that, but I think there is a, a line drawn in the sand of what does the Bible clearly say? What are some of the dangers, Dr. Brown, that you might say practically of believing a pre-trib rapture? So one is what happened to, to Christians in China who were taught a pre-trib rapture before Chairman Mao came to power and the iron curtain, excuse me, the bamboo curtain went up and they were told before things get really bad, they'll be taken out. And, and of course that, that didn't happen. Hang on, just got to turn this no alarm worries. off. No problem. Uh, that, di that didn't happen. And Corey Ten Boom said that when the missionaries came back, many of the Christians were very upset with them. As you told wow. us, we'd be raptured out before trouble and hardship came. You say, oh, no, no, no. But it's before the wrath of God is poured. You make that distinction. It's like, hey, we, we suffered horrifically. We went through all kinds of tribulation. Don't, don't tell us we didn't go through that. So there can be a false expectation that you will not go through certain suffering. I actually heard a sermon in March of, of 2020 at a, a major church in America, well-known church in America, and it was just done by internet because the building cannot have people in it because of COVID, explaining, don't worry, this is not going to get really bad, and there's no way there could be a real plague Otherwise, God would rapture us out first. Mm. So this is saying we're not even going to have a really bad bout of COVID because God would rapture us out first. So there's that, that mentality. The, the, the fellow said, look, excuse me of being an escapist, but I'm a biblical escapist because Jesus said, pray you can escape all the things that are coming. You can escape things and go right through them You know, at, at the same time as Jesus speaks of us doing it elsewhere. 
the the other mentality is is not just the false expectation and the being disappointed when we do go through tribulation hardship and final days of tribulation but the other thing is there's a theology that says and it's it's not always there with pre-trib teaching but normally is that things will only get worse before Jesus returns that everything is going to degenerate before he returns so why bother trying to change the culture why bother getting engaged in the school system, you know, with what your kids are learning, because things are only going to get worse. It is a theology of pessimism that is very unhelpful, very unhealthy. And even if it was true that at some point things will only go down, maybe that's 100 years from now or 50 years from now. What if people thought that through history, there'd never be any kind of change? So that's the second thing. The third thing is this mentality of he could come any minute, he could come any minute, he could come any minute can play on us in such a way that we don't plan and think in a long-term way that we're not asking, okay, what kind of world are my great grandkids going to live in? Cause that's the reality wow. that, that that's happened to everybody else so far, you know, in previous generations that they're, they're future descendants, or why should I go to medical school and spend all these years to, to get a, a, a doctor's uh, license and then, serve so I could be a medical missionary because people just die. I need to tell them about Jesus because he's coming any minute. So the ability to think in a multi-generational way or to plan long-term is, is often robbed by this any minute, any minute mentality. I know that's how I thought when I was first saved. And I remember pulling up to our church building on a Sunday morning when we had shifted the clocks, you know, that in the fall or spring, we yeah, shifted yeah. the clocks and I showed up an hour early Oh no! and nobody was there. And I thought, oh no, I, I, I missed the rapture. So this is the way some people live. It's unhealthy. It's unbiblical. Wow. So good, man. You're just, you're just breaking stuff in my mind. I love it. I love it. It's really good stuff. Um, guys, if you want to ask a question, Dr. Brown was generous enough to say he'll stay on a little bit extra tonight to answer some questions. So if you're going to ask a question, you can go ahead and do that now. Make sure you hit capital Q period, then ask your question. Please keep it concise. If you're just jumping on and we don't answer your questions, probably because we already answered it. So we're not going to keep rehashing the same questions over and over. But if you do have a question about this, feel free to put Q period, and be concise. Do not write your whole life story, please. Don't give us your prophetic song in the question. Just ask your question, and then we'll go on. But I wanted to ask you this, a personal question, Dr. Brown. What are your thoughts on the last days? Do you think we're in the last days? Do you see, for example, what's going on in Ukraine? When you see these world events, do you see them as signs that we're in labor pains, that we're approaching? You know, as the Bible says that the earth is in labor for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed groaning. What are your thoughts on some of these world events that happen? All right. First, the New Testament is clear that since the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have been in the last days. Mm. And, and remember when, when Peter's preaching in Acts, the second chapter, and he quotes from Joel, in Joel, it just says, after this, I will pour out my spirit. But Peter adds words in that are not there in the Hebrew. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. So the last days outpouring began 2000 years ago. And throughout the New Testament, it's spoken of the end of the age, or 1 John 2, the last hour. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years and always live with that holy tension of being in this world and yet not of it, and knowing that the judge is at the door, you know, marching in parallel history and will break in suddenly. So that's one thing. The second thing is, when I got saved in 71, it was all worked out. We knew Jesus was coming very, very soon because all the signs were at hand and everything had fallen into place. And mm. surely the end was near. So again, that was 71. I'm not a skeptic. I, 
when I do my prayer retreats on a monthly basis, my heart is consumed with wanting to see Jesus return in my lifetime. My heart is consumed with, with wanting to see everything that God says has to happen, happen before I die. I mean, I, I burn with that. I travail for, for greater fruit and greater effectiveness to, to see these things happen. But from what I can see, when you've got more than 2 billion people who've never even heard the name of Jesus, they don't, they don't, it's not they don't know the story. They don't even know him. He's a non-existent figure to them. I realize there, there's much more to be done still with the Great Commission. When I look at the horrific things taking place in Ukraine, I mean, it's grievous. It's, it's horrific and, and, and shocking. But is it a fraction of what happened in, in World War II or, or a fraction of, of the loss of life under Stalin or under Mao? Or, you know, you look at COVID, but is it a fraction of what happened, say, with the Spanish flu or with the Black Plague? So these are painful things. And each of them could be a, a, another birth pang, another contraction along the way. But I really don't know. I, I live with, because the word of God does not give me enough information to be able to set times and dates. And everyone I know that sets times and dates thus far has been wrong. <laughs> that mm. much I know. Look, I was around when the book 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Out in 1988 became a bestseller. Hundreds of thousands of copies sold and given away. And, and, and Jesus is going to be coming back on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year Feast of Trumpets, September 12th of 1988. And people were going to, they were spending all this money because they're going to leave their debts to the Antichrist. And someone said to me, Mike, you're going to read that. I said, on September 13th. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I knew that the thing was bogus. Sure enough, the next year he comes out with the second addiction, 89 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1989. So wow. Isaiah, to be totally candid, especially when I'm around other prophetic brothers and they want to know, what are you sensing? What are you seeing? There is this temptation to want to say, oh yeah, this is unfolding. That's unfolding. But better to say, Jesus said, there are going to be wars, rumors of wars. There are going to be famines, earthquakes, but, that, but the end is not yet. Really, really good stuff. Um, one person asked in the chat, of all your debating and talking, what are what is the most compelling preacher argument that you feel like you've heard that someone has made? I haven't. I, I was going to say. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm, I'm say. not being demeaning, insulting. I, I, I don't want to come across. I'm just being honest. Uh, now, if I've debated a Calvinist, you know, so obviously Romans 9, strong passage there, and we have our answers. Or if I've, if I've debated a rabbi, strong objections. But the same thing with cessationism. If I'm yeah. just going by scripture, there's no scriptural argument against the, the, the continuation of, of the gifts that, that Paul speaks of, et cetera, in the New Testament. So honestly, I haven't, I've listened carefully. I find it very, very beautiful the way it's taught and laid out and things like that. But honestly, and again, I don't mean it in an insulting way. There's no argument that comes to mind. It's like, oh, that's a tough one. I got to think about that. So good. Uh, so people, I don't know why this question's come like 15 times. You already addressed this. People must have missed it. Um, they say, can you please address, and this is like the only question I keep seeing with this verse, Revelation 3.10, which is, um, Revelation 3.10 says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to, intest the, to test the inhabitants of the earth. Dr. Michael Brown, you want to just retouch on that? I know you already yes. did, but you go to retouch on it. Number one, that was a promise that Jesus gave to the church in Philadelphia in the first century. So what did it mean to them? If the only application is at the end of the age, you get raptured before the tribulation, then the verse has absolutely no meaning to the church back then. Mm. So that's the first thing to work out. And when you figure that out, then you'll figure out that God kept them 
on the earth as there was worldwide trial testing, you know, whatever the, the circumstance was, and he kept them in the midst of it. More importantly, more importantly, even if we just take it as an abstract verse, has no nothing to do with its original context, nothing to do with the church that Jesus says it's for, right? And it's just for the believers in, in the last generation that get raptured. The, the words keep from or protect from in Greek occur only one other time in the New Testament. That is in John 17, 15, where Jesus says to his father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. This is mm. Jesus saying, Father, don't take them out of the world, but rather keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the exact same words in the Greek. Only occur one other time. Let Jesus tell us what they mean. So right here, without taking us out of this world, God will keep us from the hour of trial that affects everyone else. Very simple. So good. So all you that keep putting Revelation 3.10, there's your answer there. Um, what do you make of, you know what, I'm not even going to ask this because I want to stay on topic. Guys, this is not a question on the whole book of Revelation. Um, this is just specifically on pre-trib and post-trib. So I'm going to stay away from the questions of the 144,000 and these different things because we could do another video on the book of Revelation. Um, what about the mid-trib doctrine? Is that something you've seen that's prevalent? A lot of people have asked about that. Um, is there an argument for that? I've To be personal, I've never even looked into a, a mid-trib. I think it's pretty uncommon. In. What are your thoughts on yeah. the mid-trip? Well, doctrine? it breaks down the same way. Do you have a second coming and a third coming? It, it breaks down the same way that you have all these words speaking about a public event that the whole world will see. And, and it, by the way, it's an event that makes noise too. What does it say in First mm. Thessalonians 4? That he will come what? With the blast of the trumpet, yep. the yep. shout of the archangel and the blast of the trumpet. What does it say in, Re in, in Revelation 11? that when the seventh of seven trumpets is sounded, that's when it will be announced the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15? That when we are instantly changed, right? Caught up to meet him, which I believe it, right? Instantly yep. changed, 1 Corinthians 15. When will that happen? The last trumpet, correct? Mm. What does it say in Matthew 24? After the tribulation of those days, the sign of the son of man's coming will appear and he will come with a loud yep. trumpet. trumpet. Isn't that interesting that mm. you have a last trumpet that nobody hears before the before the tribulation, followed by another trumpet seven years after the last trumpet? Perhaps they are the same trumpet. So uh, again, these are things. Trust me, Isaiah. When I was zealously pre-trib, I explained how the last trumpet here was different than the, the the seventh trumpet here. The seventh of seven was different than the last here. And then people say, "No, no, no. It it has to do with with Jewish ceremony, and it's the last trumpet blast of that day." Or, or you know, no one knows the day or the hour. That's Jewish ceremony. Listen, I don't want to pull rank here, but but I believe I've studied Jewish literature and interacted more with rabbis than everyone in the chat combined. Yeah. And there are no such references in the Jewish literature. Not only have I scoured the volumes and, and scoured the concordances, I've talked to the most learned rabbis I know. And like, what are you talking about? There's no such reference there. So forget, you know, the Jewish really tradition backing up the pre-trib rapture. That's another myth. 
Really good. Somebody said, and a few people, I'm only going to take guys common ones. So if you're asking a one-off question again, only on topic, we're not going off topic. Just stay, we're going to stay on topic. Someone said, what do you make of Luke 17, 26 through 30, which I'll read it. Cause obviously, you know, I'm not expecting you to have it memorized. Um, it says just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the son of man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, giving into marriage up until Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. It was the same in the days of lot. People were eating, drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this on the day the Son of Man is being revealed. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so first, uh, Noah didn't leave the earth and Lot didn't leave the earth, right? That's good. The wrath was poured out and they were protected. Which so, is what you said earlier. You said it, it, God exactly. will protect us. That, that's one thing. The other thing is, even if you want to argue that, that it is talking about catching us up then, Okay. Fine. We are caught up and descend with him as he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God. So that final destruction, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, how many years was the tribulation of Sodom and Gomorrah? It wasn't. It was a one-time yeah. outpouring of wrath, right? How many years was the flood? It wasn't. It, it was something that lasted a, a period of months in terms of the flood, and then, or even the flood itself was just a period of weeks, right? So in, in each place, God protects his people right in the midst What's going on? Noah and the ark, they were protected in the flood. The flood happened. They were in the flood, but they just were in an ark. They weren't taken off the earth. And the same with Lot. They just went to a neighboring city. But even if you want to argue, we have to be taken out first. We are caught up to meet him and we descend with him. Remember, the meeting in the air is the meeting where we go and escort him back to the earth in our transformed bodies as he pours out judgment on a sinning world. Really good. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for taking these questions. Do you mind if I throw a couple more at you? I Go want to for respect, it. Okay, I want to respect your time as well. Um, a couple people have left this comment, the restrainer removed argument. I don't know if you're familiar with that argument. Of, yeah, of uh, course. Okay, so they're saying, what are your thoughts on that if the restrainer is removed? Um, and then, again, go ahead. We'll just, just touch on that. Right, so let's first look in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, okay? okay. And, and let's first just take a look at what Paul says there. Concerning the coming, not rapture, right? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. So everyone would say, well, that must describe the rapture because we're being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become uh, easily unsettled uh, or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or what word of mouth or letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion, the apostasy, occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So he's saying that our being gathered to, to the Lord and his coming will not happen until the rebellion, which by the way means rebellion in Greek. It does not mean secret rapture. Don't let anyone throw that on you. Okay. So until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So first Paul's explicitly saying his coming and when we're gathered to meet him will not happen until there is this final apostasy and the antichrist is revealed. Right, he'll he'll oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or worships. That he sits himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. So there's an it, what is holding him back, and a who that is holding him back. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Got it? 
So mm. the coming, same, same Paul writing in the same verses to the same people, talking about the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord. And he said, that won't happen until the Antichrist is revealed. We'll be gathered together uh, after that time to meet the Lord. And he's going to come and destroy the Antichrist. So Paul's using the, the word coming here very clearly, referring to this one event when we're caught up to meet him. All right, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, the idea that the, the, the church is taken out of the way and with the church, the Holy Spirit, and that's what's restraining the Antichrist. Well, then how is it that all these multitudes get saved yeah. in the tribulation without the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Where that's in really the world good. did we get a doctrine like that from? In our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Craig Keener points out that there are over 30 different interpretations among New Testament scholars as to, as to the what and the who. But a good argument can be that the what has to do with governmental authority and the who with a strong earthly leader, when they are taken out of the way, now the man of lawlessness can, can, can arise. And the reason Paul doesn't mention it specifically like that is because Roman authorities might have thought that he was talking about overthrowing the Roman Empire or getting rid of, of Roman leadership, and hence it could have been misunderstood. That's why he just talks about it the way that he does. But what we know is it can't be the church because Paul's told us here that we won't be gathered to him until after the man of lawlessness is revealed. And at the time of Jesus coming, he will then destroy the Antichrist and we will be gathered to meet him. And we know it can't be the Holy Spirit because no one can be saved without the Holy Spirit. So whoever the restrainer is, whatever the restrainer is, is a subject of debate. But I think a good argument can be made in terms of, of legal government and authority, law, and, and then a strong leader, you take those out of the way, where do you get lawlessness? So good. Um, a couple people have asked, Matthew 24, 40, which I think you talked about earlier, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. And let me just say something, and you don't have to even, maybe you've already said, hey, we've already talked about this. Guys, Dr. Brown is not saying there will not be a taking away as, as we talk about the rapture. What he's saying is the timeline is not gonna be before the tribulation. So there will still be a taking away where we meet Christ in the air. We're not debating the, the rapture happening, but we will return with Christ in the air. Would that match up, Dr. Brown, with um, this verse in Matthew? Because uh, I don't think it contradicts it, right? Matthew 24, 40, where if, two men- if, if I read it like that, then I would say, yeah, it's not contradicting, but I don't think that's what he's saying. It's taken in judgment. One okay. is taken in judgment and the other is left. What does it say in Matthew 13, 40? As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever is here, let, let them hear. Whoever is here, let them hear. I could go either way in terms of the meaning. And like you say, we, we will be caught up to meet him. Absolutely. And we'll descend together. Remember, we meet him and escort him to earth for his arrival, for his coming. But it could well be in Matthew 24, as, as many scholars believe, he's talking about one will be taken, namely in judgment, and, and the, the other will remain here. So he returns and, and with us and all of the ungodly, they're the ones that are now taken away and destroyed. Gotcha. Okay. Really, really good. Um, we're, again, this is off topic. I'm not going to answer this one. We talked about mid-trib. Um, the elders in Revelation, I've been taught that those represent the church. Don't the elders represent the church in Revelation when they're before the throne? 
Who told you that? I th- no, someone asked that they wrote that. They no, 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 been... that's my question. Oh, oh gotcha, gotcha. Who told you? Well, it says there are 24 that represents the church and that represents Israel. Well, first thing, fine. Let the 24 represent the church and represent Israel. Fine. J- just like the New Jerusalem, you've got the foundations of the, the names of the apostles and the gates of the names of the tribes of Israel. Let them represent anything. But where does it say it represents a pre-trib rapture or the church in heaven? It doesn't. But the other, the bigger question is, who told you? <laughs> what That's Bible good. verse told you what the 24 represents? Yeah, and I think, too, when we get you know into revelatory preaching, we could make the text say something it doesn't say, and yeah. we could say this represents that, and we speak it as if it's authoritative, and we're speaking canon now, and it's not. It's, it's our revelation, but it doesn't mean it has authoritative power like Scripture does. Um, so, and, and then let me also say this. I think people are confused about this as well. We're aware, and Dr. Brown has said this throughout the broadcast, there are Christians in heaven right now. So the, there are people from the church right now, this church age currently, you know, maybe your uncle died last week that is a part of your church that's currently in heaven. So there is a ecclesia that was from the earth that is in heaven. No one's debating that, but it doesn't mean that's the church that's been raptured, right? Is that is that safe exactly. to say there? Exactly, yeah, yes, sir. Okay, awesome. Someone said, well, how, how should we plan our lives now if the post-trib is real and we will enter the tribulation? Are we entering the tribulation or are these just birth pains currently? So is there something we should be doing to plan? You know, a lot of people obviously are were pre-trib and an hour later now they're post-trib. Is there any change they should make or do we keep yeah, living yeah. how get we've been? Of, get rid of the big emphasis on the tribulation or the great tribulation and put the emphasis on tribulation that occurs over and over in the New Testament that Jesus and Paul tell us to expect and tell us that we'll have tribulation in this world, that in Jesus we overcome it, that we will grow in the midst of it, that our character can be strengthened. Don't think, put all this into this, this one period, the seven-year tribulation or the three-and-a-half-year great tribulation, whatever it is. We don't, we don't know that we'll be alive during this time. It could be 50 or 100 years off or 200 years off or, or three years off. We don't know that. But what we do know is what Jesus said. In this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33, but be encouraged, I've overcome the world. Paul, Acts 14, 22, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Romans 5, 3, we grow through tribulation. These are verses I quoted before. Romans 8, 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No, no. So put your emphasis where it belongs. Here, here look at it like this. If I knew there was a possibility, and it it might be in terms of everyone that's lived so far, one in in 50 50 or 20 trillion people, right? There is the possibility that that a car is going to come down this particular road and drive me to a particular place, right? There's that possibility. Yeah. However, I can walk it in in 20 minutes. Well, I'm going to (laughs) walk. In in other words, what I do know is what's happened to every other human being in history thus far, that there are hard times in this world, that there's satanic attack, that there are people who hate us, that we may be rejected or even killed for the gospel. So be it. We're overcomers. Let's bear much fruit. Let's make a difference. And here's the way I live. You said earlier, it may not be the last days, but these are our last days. So that's how I live. I've got one life only. Yeah. One life to repay my debt of gratitude to Jesus. Well, one, one life to make an impact, one life to, to rescue people from, from perishing, one, one life to glorify the Lord to the max in this world. 
So that gives me tremendous urgency every single day of my life. And, and look, I'm 67 now. I feel great, vibrant, healthy by God's grace, but I don't know how much time I have. Even if I live to be 90 something, you know, the, the clock is ticking. So here's how I live my life. I want to see the Lord return in my lifetime, but I give a substantial part of my life to pouring into the next generation. Good. I've been teaching in ministry schools now, go, basically going on 40 years, wow. pouring in and continue to do it to equip the next generation. So think of it like this. We're in a relay race, right? We're in a relay race. Yep. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a four by 400. You're running 400 meters. Okay. So, you know, four by 400, exactly where you are. What if it's a, a, an X by 400? You don't know how many legs there are. You run your 400 meters, the best you know how. That's good. The fastest you know how. Now, here's my goal. When I reach the end, I want to give the baton to Jesus. That's and good. that's the end. And he returns. But it may not happen. Then I'm going to hand it to you. And then you're going to hand it to your kids. And it could be five more generations. But either way, I'm running the same way. So we must have a multi-generational mentality because scripture calls us to, to teach our children in the coming generations about who God is. And it's been a failure of many, sadly, many Christians have gotten so uninvolved because, hey, it's only going downhill from here that now our kids are being raised in, in a horrific mess, which leads me, before I go, I want to remind everyone or tell you for the first time, this, this coming Thursday, April 14th, is our first ever national not ashamed of Jesus day. Come on. We live in a culture that's trying to silence us, marginalize us, demonize us, cancel us. All right. And the best thing we can do is shout out all the more. We're here. We love Jesus. We love you. And we're not ashamed. Why 414? I felt the Lord drop this in my heart. Let it be tested. I felt the Lord drop this in my heart. Esther 414, where Mordecai says to Esther, who knows if you came into the kingdom for such a time as this. And, and some believers have been kind of under the radar. Well, on this day, wear something or bring something to work or school with you or post something that says, hey, we love Jesus. We love you. We're not ashamed. Others have always been doing this. But on this day, look for another opportunity to reach someone. Pray for an open door or a divine appointment. And then maybe you'll find out all these other coworkers are believers too or your boss, or this one, or that one. It is our way to push back against cancel culture. Everyone go to notashamedofjesus.org. I know we threw a bunch of links yep, at you Yep, there's tonight. a link down below as well. There's 3,500 of you right now. If everybody, listen, it's not hard to do, guys. If everybody that's watching live, which we'll get way more replays later, but let's just pretend only those watching live will watch this. The link is down below. If everybody jumps on there and participates, is there instructions on the website of how people can Everything, how to do it, ideas, uh, downloads for pastors, things to think about. And then we hashtag Jesus414 on that day, post a video, share something. Put the, you know, show the shirt you're wearing. Jesus four four hashtag Jesus four fourteen. Get the word out, and we don't have some big budget behind this or a PR team. It's just spreading the word this way. So and, uh, and with that, I'm looking at the clock. How about one last question? Yeah, we're gonna do one last one here. Um, you say that God is gonna keep us, but why are Christians still gonna be martyred throughout the tribute or in the tribulation period? Right. Just like we're martyred now, we're never yeah. promised protection from that. We're promised protection from God's wrath. Yeah. God's wrath is never for us as people. So we are protected from that, but we're not protected from hatred, martyrdom. And ask yourself a question. People who were tortured to death, people who were starved to death, people whose children were taken from them and they never saw them again. 
of people who are buried alive. Is the Antichrist going to do that worse? Is it going to be worse when he buries you alive? I mean, we've got this mythical yeah, yeah. thing we're dealing with. The reality is that that there, there are people that were either in, in my own ministry school that, that our team poured into and laid hands on and sent out, or where I've ministered in other nations and we've laid hands on people and sent them out. I, I can think of at least five of them that have been martyred. Okay. Mm. These were people that I laid hand, I was one of the ones laying hands on them, praying over them, sending them out. And that's just people I can attest to personally. And, and we've got friends in different parts of the world. I, I just talked to one of my closest friends in the world from India last night. And, and he was talking about the growth they're seeing in these really difficult parts in the North. And he said, brother, they don't care if they get killed, they get killed, but wow. they're preaching Jesus. And, and that's the kind of overcoming spirit. So let, let me leave with, with yeah. this word. The title of our book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture, the title came from the publisher. Craig Keener and I wanted to use the subtitle as the main title because my purpose is not to insult you, not to say, well, you're afraid of the Antichrist if you believe in a pre-trib rapture. You might say, I'm afraid of nothing. I'll die for Jesus tomorrow. I just believe this is what the word teaches. God bless you. I'm not here to demean you or insult you. I just want to say this. Let us all have the mentality of overcomers. Yes. The reality is in this world, we face the wrath of Satan and the wrath of man. That is a reality. Jesus never promised to protect us from that, but rather to be with us in the midst of that. So let us have the mentality of overcomers as following Jesus, whether by life or by death. Let us unite around that as we pre-trib, post-trib, either way, eagerly await the coming of the Lord. Let's shine while we yet have breath. Let's unite on those points. So good, Dr. Brown. Listen, I'm 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 converted. I'm on post trip. Here, here's why: I can't, with a good conscience, continue to preach pre-tribulation after you just destroyed every single argument that I've ever used. I mean, that's the reality of it. So, if those of you in the chat are asking, "What are you now, Isaiah?" I'm, I believe in post-tribulation because I think and I believe. He laid it out clearly in scripture and I can't, again, I can't reconcile these arguments. I can't, I can't look at them and say with a good conscience, you know, of course with tradition you can, but with a good conscience and say, this is what the Bible says when I don't see it in the text. So for all my friends watching that are like, are you going to be converted post-trib? I am, I am officially, I do believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Dr. Brown, it has been an honor. Let me ask you one question personally. Will you come back on the show in the future if I invite you? Oh, with, with joy. And the awesome. fact that you have so many folks in the chat, listen, I wish I could answer everybody directly. My ministry is askdrbrown.org. So ask, I mean, we, we welcome it. I got my daily radio show, all, all the infos on our website, askdrbrown.org. And um, so, so we take questions, check out the resources we have there. Just like Isaiah, we've got tons the of book free as resources. well, right? The book on the, yeah. anti, not afraid of the Antichrist. Not afraid of the Antichrist. Get it. You'll see it's written with love and grace and filled with scripture and a lot about overcoming. You'll be encouraged just by that. But if you ever call in the radio show, if you differ with me, or want to give me a piece of your mind or tell me why you think I'm missing something, we welcome it. We, we take calls different days of the week. Every Friday, you can call and ask me a question on any subject under the sun. So interact with me. Let us be here for you. But with an audience like this, so engaged, Isaiah, it'll be my joy to come back. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Michael Brown, so much for being on. Have a great night. And then God I'll bless. be contacting your assistant about some other stuff I want to send you. Thank you so much. Sounds good. All right. God bless. God bless. What an incredible, incredible time. To Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content. And please follow me on Facebook, 
YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.